Hello and welcome to the November 29th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. Again, this episode will just be me, Anthony Bardaway, as the logistics of recording these things is quite difficult due to the power outage situation. Now, I talked about these in the last episode, but within the last week, the situation regarding uh, electric infrastructure has been significantly more difficult than before. I typically do not have any electricity during the day at all at the moment, though there is some at night time hours. So I'm recording and then we'll publish in the wee hours of the morning just because that's when I can. So what is the electricity situation in Ukraine, specifically Kiev? I can't speak so much on other places. It is quite situational. In the West, it is better than in the center. And in the East, it is the worst. But in Kiev, anyway, I will say that typically speaking, like I said, during the daylight hours, there is very little electricity. It might turn on a little bit here and there, um, sometimes for as little as just a few minutes, and then out again. Thankfully, grocery stores tend to still have generators like we've discussed in the past. You don't want a, you know, a big freezer full of frozen fish suddenly turned into a big pile of muck. So it's good to, to make sure that those are still uh, powered up. Now, for me anyway, this also means no heat, though as far as hot water goes, I personally have a hot water tank that is electric and can therefore, you know, heat up during those electricity hours and maintains its temperature for a pretty long time. So at least one big tank full of hot water per electricity session. Similarly, I've started using my good old a hiking stove for cooking purposes, and that covers my, unfortunately, electric stove. Otherwise, no streetlights much of the time. Um, most smaller businesses, unless they decide to get a generator, and many of them do at this point, uh, are have to go in the dark. And overall, a much tougher situation than it had been in the past with its uh, four hours off two times a day kind of situation. Now, the reasoning for this is that Russia had targeted many of the transformers and different electrical infrastructure, not so much the power generation itself. These power plants are tough nuts to crack, but the surrounding infrastructure that actually gets electricity to the people is much more vulnerable. The other downside of this is that a lot of this is old Soviet equipment. And this old Soviet equipment is harder to replace because you just don't make it anymore, which has made maintaining these things under very heavy conditions uh, much more difficult to do. Although it turns out that uh, Germany and I believe Romania are slated to help provide some of this equipment to Ukraine in order to make these repairs uh, better. Because at this rate, Ukraine is rapidly running out of equipment to repair these electrical infrastructure facilities. And if that happens, we all go dark. You may have seen some rather uh, harrowing videos of electricity outages in hospitals and surgeons doing heart surgery with uh, the lights available to them. 
which is absolutely terrifying to me. Surgery in general is <laughs> a bit of a phobia, I suppose you could say. And the idea of these doctors having to have a bunch of high powered flashlights in order to dig into a child's heart cavity is very nerve rending. Though I have to say, people are adjusting rather quickly. It doesn't seem like anyone is, you know, especially short or, you know, irritable at the moment. Everyone seems to be just going, taking it in stride. It's quite remarkable how fast you can get used to increasingly difficult scenarios. So that will be the new normal for a while. There's really no telling when uh, this situation can be repaired. It seems as though it is, like I said, quite difficult to do so. So it might not, it, 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 it might just be this way for the rest of the winter, to be completely honest unless there is a uh, significant influx of equipment to repair these things, and also just these electricity workers. They, they're heroes, but I feel like there's only so much they can do working these people around the clock for months on end. It's got to take it out of them somewhat. But from there, I'd like to talk a bit about the combat update. And really, not much has changed since the last episode. After last episode where Herson, where we talked about Herson being retaken and just a huge swath of territory returning to Ukrainian control, uh, after these things, there tends to be a pause period where the various forces shift themselves around in order to find out where they're going to go next, where they're going to prioritize, uh, resupply, take a break from morale, that kind of thing. So we're still in that kind of pause period after the huge change that happened in Kherson. But as suspected, the Russians, now on the eastern side of the Dnipro River from the previously occupied Kherson, their former capital in the region, they have decided to shell Kherson quite intensely. Last I checked, over 30 people had been killed in Russian shelling of Kherson within the past few days. Apparently, there are snipers on the eastern side of the Dnipro River making going to the riverfront to, for example, collect water. There is still no water supply in Kherson, and the Russians destroyed the facility that handled that, so it'll take a long time to, to bring it back entirely. But to go down to the Dnipro River is very dangerous because, like I said, there are snipers. Likewise, likewise, there has been clearing operations, demining, etc. within these liberated, liberated territories of Kherson, where, as always, like we discussed last episode, there's always these discoveries, torture chambers, mass graves, all manner, uh, all manner of war crimes and horrific sites. I, I, I feel I, I say the same thing after every bit of territory because it is a consistent thing. It's just how the Russians operate. It is what will always be found after liberating anything. So just keep that in mind of what it means to cede territory to Russia. This is what they're doing everywhere. There are hundreds of buchas scattered all around the country. The main Russian effort right now is at Bakhmut. And I have to be honest with you, this is starting to wear on me just from watching the videos and seeing the pictures. The Russian strategy at Bakhmut is 
basically suicide waves. They're using a lot of uh, Mobix mobilized units as well as prisoners. These prisoners who joined Wagner, you've we've talked about, you may have heard of. These prisoners are handed a gun, told to go forward, and that seems to be about the extent of the Russian strategy. Now, when you have that kind of mass and just tell them to go forward, they'll find a way to go forward a little bit. But overall, Bakhmut is still holding just fine. There are reports that it is under threat. It's no more under threat now than it was before. It is very ugly. It truly is hell on earth, but it is holding. Uh, the Russians have tried to manipulate this information by doing what they always do, which is to kind of bundle in any tiny amount of good news that they may have heard over the course of a week or longer and kind of release it all at once to make it sound like they did one big push to gain all these things, when in reality, they would have gained maybe like three villages over the course of as many weeks and just kind of hope that if they release the information all at once, it makes it sound like they gained those three villages all at once in one big push. That is not the case. Bakhmut is still holding just fine. But like I said, with these videos and pictures, the ground around Bakhmut is littered with corpses. It is bad on the Ukrainian side, of course, but most of those corpses are Russians. Reports from the Bakhmut sector describe it as basically there will be a Russian that comes up with a rifle, you kill him, and there'll just be another one behind him, and another one behind him, and another one behind him, with really no variation in tactics, just bum rushing forward, many of them dying, and then leaving their bodies on the field to rot. There have been many open source intelligence uh, outfits who have agreed with my emotional reaction to this, which is horror. Um, how can the Russians have such absolute disregard for the lives of their own men? But we kind of know the answer to that, don't we? They don't have regard for any human life, including their own men. It's not a difference between whether the dead body is a Russian or Ukrainian or whatever to them. They just have no regard for human life whatsoever. And quite frankly, I'm not going to have more empathy for these soldiers than their own comrades do. As of now, that's about it for the combat update, though, because like I said, they're still in the repositioning phase. Just, just that, as I feel like we're saying every single episode, Wagner Group especially is bashing its head across Bakhmut with very little to show for it from many, many months, except a large amount of human suffering, which quite honestly, at this point, I believe is their main goal, um, real kind of corn blood for the blood god kind of, kind of attitude, where these Russian commanders just want to see people dead, and if it's their own soldiers who are dying, all the better. The main thing I'd like to talk about this episode, though, relates to two different Memorial Days that have passed recently. The first of these was Holodomor Remembrance Day, which is every fourth Saturday of November. The Holodomor was the forced famine, the genocide committed by the Soviet government against the people of Ukraine 
between 1932 and 1933, in which something like three and a half million, four million, it's a rough estimate, it's very hard to count, but in that range, uh, people died of starvation or in some cases direct killing or diseases that came from uh, starvation. I would like to begin talking about this through the lens of genocide scholar Raphael Lemkin. He was a Jewish intellectual from what is now Belarus, though he studied in Lviv. Raphael Lemkin was the guy who coined the term genocide and who had spent much of his life uh, trying to translate that into a legal reality, a legal framework that could be used at the international level. The basis of much of his early work actually referred to uh, the Armenian genocide and the various descriptions he heard of the mass killing of Armenians by the uh, Turkish state, especially after the assassination of Talat Pasha in 1921. The trial of his assassin, excuse me, Armenians out there, this is a uh, difficult name for me to pronounce, by us. Sogomon Talirian, the trial of Talirian, was something of a media spectacle where really the genocide itself was put on trial. So there was a lot of media attention towards the Armenian genocide, which led to his kind of, in a way, founding the modern uh, concept of genocide studies. His work after World War II related to the Holocaust and to the Holodomor where he gave this speech called the, uh, the Soviet Genocide in Ukraine. And I actually picked up a rather hefty tome of Soviet Genocide in Ukraine, uh, translated into most of the UN languages, all of the working UN languages, as well as many of the others. Got Armenian in here, got Estonian, Arabic, uh, it's not a lot of uh, immaterial per language, but in a lot of languages, which I find fascinating. But this is how Lemkin described the Holodomor. And I, here's, this is the quote. What I want to speak about is perhaps the classic example of Soviet genocide. It's the longest and broadest experiment in Russification, the destruction of the Ukrainian nation. This is, as I have said, only the logical successor of each czarist crime's as the drowning of 10,000 Crimean Tatars by order of Catherine the Great, the mass murders of Ivan the Terrible's SS troops, Daporichina, the extermination of national Polish leaders and Ukrainian Catholics by Nicholas I, and the series of Jewish pogroms that have stained Russian history periodically. And it has had its matches within the Soviet Union in the annihilation of the Ingrian nation, the Don and Kuban Cossacks, Crimean Tatar republics, the Baltic nations of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Each is a case in the long-term policy of liquidation of non-Russian peoples by the removal of select parts. Ukraine constitutes a slice of the southeastern USSR equal in area to France and Italy, and inhabited by some 30 million people. Itself the Russian breadbasket, geography has made a strategic key to the Caucasus in Iran and to the entire Arab world. In the north, it borders Russia proper. As long as Ukraine retains its national unity, as long as its people continue to think of themselves as Ukrainians and to seek independence, 
so long as Ukraine poses a serious threat to the very heart of Sovietism. It is no wonder that the communist leaders have attached a great importance to the Russification of this independent member of their Union of Republics, have determined to remake it to fit their pattern of one Russian nation. For the Ukrainian is not and has never been a Russian. His culture, his temperament, his language, his religion, all are different. At the side door to Moscow, he has refused to be collectivized, accepting deportation, even death. So it is peculiarly important that the Ukrainian be be fitted into the pro-Krustian pattern of the ideal Soviet man. Ukraine is highly susceptible to racial murder by select parts, and so the communist tactics there have not followed the pattern taken by the German attacks against the Jews. The nation is too populous to be exterminated completely with any efficiency. However, its leadership, religious, intellectual, political, its select and determining parts are quite small and therefore easily eliminated. And so it is upon these groups, particularly, that the full force of the Soviet axe has fallen, with its familiar tools of mass murder, deportation, and forced labor, exile, and starvation. It goes on to explain how the different um, particular parts of Ukraine were destroyed, but I think you get the point there. Now, the Soviet Union under Stalin had a very particular policy of Russification. For many nationalities, they were small enough to simply remove, many of them through deportation to Central Asia and Siberia. This was the fate of many of the Baltic peoples, as well as the Crimean Tatars, the Chechens, really everyone in the Soviet Union uh, besides the Russians faced extermination of one kind or another at one point in time or another. But this form of deportation was not so effective with Ukraine because of the reason that Lemkin stated. It is just too large of a area, too large of a population, and too powerful politically and potentially militarily if it came down to rebellion. So deportation couldn't work. Starvation could, though. Also, like he said, Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, especially the southeastern portion of Ukraine, but also the rest of the country as well, is extraordinarily rich in soil. It can grow food more so than anywhere else by inputs to outputs. So just the idea of starvation and famine in the richest in food part of Europe is perverse just on its own. But what, what, led to the, what led to the famine? Well, we'll start out with just the general explanation of, for one, there was, in fact, a famine. Stalin did not cause the crops to fail, although a bit, I'll get into that. There was a, a Soviet botanist named Trofim Lysenko, who had all kinds of absolutely psychotic theories about how plants grow. Um, part of it was if you just dig a big hole in the ground and throw as many seeds into it as you could, the seeds would cooperate because of communism. Needless to say, this was not an effective agricultural method, and the theories of Lysenkoism led to possibly more deaths than any other single person in world history. So when there's a famine, we can also say that the Soviets caused the famine as well, whether by accident or on purpose, just, just on that one single point, but I'll get into why it was more on purpose now. There had been a series of famines uh, since 
the beginning of the Soviet Union, partially just because it was recovering from a long period of political instability and extreme violence in the form of World War I and then the Civil War. So it took them a while to have any kind of stable food production and distribution system, just under normal conditions, which led to some different famines, plural, in the 1920s, which is the main uh, reason that people give to say that the Holodomor was not a genocide, because these famines just happened. Um, it was a thing that happened in the Soviet Union. A lot of people died, not just Ukrainians, that kind of thing, etc. The main argument against that, though, is that during these 1920s famines, the Soviet Union allowed relief. They negotiated terms for America to ship um, aid to the Soviet Union so people would not die as much as they had been. And these 1920s uh, uh, famines were quite severe, but the government took steps in order to mitigate and prevent them. The difference between that and the 1932-1933 famines is that the Soviet Union did not allow aid. In fact, did not want anyone to even know that these famines were happening. The New York Times got a Pulitzer for their coverage of the Soviet Union at the time and the wonderful leaps and bounds in modernization that Soviet Ukraine was going through. This is all a lie. There has been an effort by Ukrainian activists to get the New York Times to give up its Pulitzer for this coverage, and they refused to do so. The other thing that made this famine much worse was that people were not allowed to leave. Now, many of you may be familiar with the Irish potato famine. The famine that wasn't really a famine, it was a genocide organized by the British government, but that's a different topic, I suppose. But how people survived the Irish potato famine was by leaving, by going to the United States, mainly, which is how New York became the largest Irish city, and other places. But because they were able to emigrate, they were able to not die, not starve. And it relieved the population pressure on Ireland to allow other people to have uh, better access to food since these other people were not also demanding it because they were in America where there was plenty of food. For Ukrainians in 1932-1933, however, they were not allowed to leave. The borders of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic were sealed off by Soviet troops. You could not enter or exit. So if you were starving and wanted to go elsewhere in the Soviet Union where there was food, you couldn't do it and you could be shot at instead. So fleeing, historically the number one way to avoid famine death, was cut off. This was on purpose. While there was no order from Stalin saying, I want to destroy Ukrainians, there's plenty of documented evidence from throughout the Soviet government that they were seeking to destroy Ukraine as a national entity, as a distinct uh, identity of its own. They considered Ukrainian nationhood to be the ultimate threat to the Soviet Union, because as stated earlier, it was kind of the largest uh, countervailing narrative to being a Soviet. It was a large nation with a lot of people, with a strong history of uh, independent thought, an economic system historically that kind of stood on its own more than in Russia. So in order to rebuild the Russian Empire, they first had to uh, eliminate Ukraine, which is why they allowed a famine to happen and exacerbated it by 
those factors that I mentioned, as well as some others. For example, um, the Soviet explanation for this famine was that the kulaks, which was a phrase for really farmers with a bit more money, but in actuality meant whoever they wanted it to mean, was not a real social caste, really. It was a designation by the Soviets of people they didn't like, especially this class of farmers who, under the uh, Soviet economic policies of the 1920s, the new economic policy, which was something of a success, um, rose this class of peasantry who had, like I said, been going through these horrible years of war. And now that they had peace, were finally able to reestablish themselves. And the Soviets called these people who had actually benefited from the Soviet policies the enemy of the people because they're the ones who benefited the most from these Soviet policies. But that's who the kulaks were. And the kulaks were also seen as the bearers of the Ukrainian national identity because Ukraine then and now to a large extent is something of a rural identity. Like I said, the, um, this is, the Ukraine is where a lot of the food comes from. So, of course, the national identity will be attached to its ability to produce food. Therefore, the countryside, farms, that kind of thing. And therefore, they had to be destroyed for that reason as well. And there are many, many Soviet documents explaining this in more detail. Um, there's many books on this topic. It's hard to get into all the evidence for why it is a genocide. It is. They said so at the time in so many words. It's just that when drafting um, the definition of genocide, the Soviet Union decided that a social group was not a target for genocide. So if you're trying to destroy a social group, that would not count as genocide, even though Lemkin insisted that it, it did. And since the Soviets were saying they're only trying to destroy a social group rather or economic social group rather than a nation, it's not genocide. <laughs> Nonsense. And so we're in this situation where people were already facing a tough harvest. The food that they were harvesting was being taken from them. If they tried to hold on to any of it for themselves, they were killed. If they tried to escape, they were killed. If they tried to even leave their farm for the cities, which were better supplied, they were killed because you weren't allowed to do that. You had an internal passport that said where you could and could not go. You could only leave your individual farm with the permission of your local party bosses. And in another comparison to the potato famine was that while people were having the food taken from them, the Soviet Union or the Soviet officials were then taking the food that they had requisitioned from the Ukrainian people, sometimes at the, the point of a gun and under threat of killing someone's entire family. They would take this food and then sell it as an as a export product in order to fund the industrialization process, the industrialization uh, policies of the 1930s. Stalin had wanted to uh, remake the image of the Soviet Union from a predominantly peasant society to a more urban industrial one. And the, the sacrifice he decided to make was that the people, instead of being able to eat the food to keep them alive, that food would then be sold to pay for industrialization. And the form of death, this method of genocide, was starvation, which to me is the most horrific way 
to kill off a large number of people. It is slow. You feel it coming. People can survive a long time without any food at all. But the longer they go, the more desperate and afraid they become. So now you're imagine you're imagine yourself in this position of how I described. You're staying put now and with no aid coming anytime soon. At first, your stomach just starts to ache. It's hard to do any work because you just don't have the energy for it. Now you have children. Your children need to eat. You barely have enough food for yourself, and now you have to spread it around your children. Are you willing to make some choices? Are you willing to decide who needs to have food the most? Does the sick child need food the most because they need it to get through? Maybe they need it the least. Maybe you should steal from your neighbor, and he'll starve. Your children will live. Maybe you'll steal from the central granary, but then you'll probably just be shot. As you try to get through it, you're harvesting, you know, sunflowers, different weeds, trying to catch mice, digging up soil and baking it to get some of the nutrients. Your body's failing you. So now you get a cold or flu, which if you were fully healthy, you could shake off. But now you barely have anything to get through. And now it's just wearing at you. And now all those decisions you had to make about feeding your family just got much more difficult because you yourself don't have as much energy as before to get by. Maybe you're bedridden. And as you lay there starving, you have to think all these decisions that I had to make as I'm dying, who's going to be able to make them? Maybe the oldest son will. He's just a kid though. And he's starving. Will he be able to take care of all of his other uh, brothers and sisters? Maybe not once I'm gone, our neighbors who are making the same decisions for their family are realizing that without me being healthy, much easier to take my food. And you look at these uh, commissars, these Soviet officials, who 15 years prior were idealistic young men out to overthrow the oppression of the Tsar to bring you know, peace and love and prosperity to the people, were now stealing the people's food at rifle point. So that is what makes starvation horrific to me is that it doesn't just kill. It first wears at the soul. It makes you desperate. This kind of thinking comes from reading the accounts of many Holocaust survivors, uh, in this case especially Primo Levi, but also others, who described the desperation of living in the camps, of how it forced people in many ways to abandon um, their higher senses so they could focus on the immediacy of survival. and how that in itself was deeply scarring. Now, this famine eventually ended with a large part of especially the rural population dead or weak. Many women were left uh, infertile as a result, many stillbirths. So in addition to um, this no large number of people who had died, then uh, the weakening of people's bodies led to a a lar much larger demographic disruption, we can say, than just the deaths themselves. And to fill that void, Russia sent in uh, colonists, essentially, from Russia. This effect was felt strongest, for example, in the Donbass region, where, because of the extreme importance of the coal industry there, they didn't ask too many questions of people and were quite accepting of uh, people who wanted to go to Donbass. So, which with a lot of it depopulated from this famine, uh, many of the people who came in to replace them were Russian. And in addition to just the, the Russians who were moved in, this was followed by an intense Russification campaign where people were 
forcibly encouraged, let's say, to think of themselves as an extension of the Russian nation. They had to speak Russian in order to advance within uh, any any field of work, the government, culture, education, what have you. So these people who were in large part uh, very heavily depopulated then were then made to take on a kind of second Russian identity. And that's kind of the genesis of uh, what Russia says is all these Russian-speaking peoples in the East. That's where that comes from. Other affected regions of the Soviet Union including the, include the Kuban. The Kuban is the part of what's now Russia on the other side of the Sea of Azov, leading down to the Caucasus, which before the Holodomor had been predominantly Ukrainian in nature, though this itself was the result of Russia um, exterminating the local Circassian people. But at the time, there were, it was a largely Ukrainian region. And because so many Ukrainians had died there, and because of Russian, Russia's, um, because of Russification policies, there's a lot of people there who are now just Russian, maybe with some Ukrainian last names. Another part of the Soviet Union that was heavily affected was Kazakhstan. Now, this is another uh, explanation for why it's not a genocide, because are you saying that the Soviets committed genocide in all these other places? Yes, they did. There is also a genocide of the Kazakh people. Uh, something like 40% of the Kazakh population was affected by this to the point where Kazakhs were no longer the majority within their own republic and were not a majority again until independence. And many of the Slavs in what was the, the, the Kazakh Republic of the 1930s were themselves Ukrainian. So the Slavs who had died in Kazakhstan were largely Ukrainian Slavs. And I'd love to go into the, the Kazakhstan famine at a different point, but that requires a lot of research, which I have not done. So I'm going to put a pin in that. Now, throughout the Soviet time, talking about the Holodomor was basically forbidden. It was not until independence that public recognition of the Holodomor was even allowed to happen, even though so many families were affected and they do had that um, family memory. But it wasn't allowed to be expressed because to express anything about the Holodomor meant anti-Soviet activity, which you could be pub um, punished for. So this deep pain that people had just had to be put on pause for decades on end. Which I guess now takes us to now, the day of Holodomor Remembrance Day. Uh, you go into the store and there wasn't any bread. Now, there was a simple enough explanation for this. Um, there was widespread power outages, and therefore, you want to have some kind of food that doesn't have to be refrigerated or frozen. Bread is easy for that. So there was just a rush on bread. We're not starving. I don't want to give that impression. We're not starving. We're fine. But the visual of not having bread on Holodomor Remembrance Day, well, I wasn't the only one to, to take note of that, let's say. I was also not the only one to take note of the fact that this genocide of the 1930s is now followed up by another genocide now. Any connection to the Russian government, whatever form it may take, imperial, Soviet, Putinist, seems like it almost by necessity has to commit genocide against Ukraine in order to recognize its own imperial identity of Russian dominance. History seems to show that it is unavoidable. 
which is why Ukrainians have to fight so hard in order to prevent it. And the other date, which was of importance, was the beginning of Euromaidan. Euromaidan, the revolution of dignity, began on November 21st. So where this all started. Ukrainians began to take a stand for their independence, for civil rights, for dignity, and they won beginning November 21st, 2013, with the protests concluding in the winter of 2014 and then the Russian invasion. You know the story. But on that note, I'd like to express our solidarity with the people of Iran and now China and their fight for their own dignity, the Iranians rising up against the Islamic Republic and its oppressive rule by the mullahs, its outright, basically ruled by misogyny, its severe oppression of women, its outright violence against women, which reached its breaking point, and they're now going through what seems to be possibly another full-blown revolution. They, uh, the Islamic Republic authorities, have moved on to Kurdish areas. The center of these protests were in the ethnic Kurdish areas and are committing horrific atrocities there in order to quell the rebellion, but is not slowing down. Something's happening there. We don't know what it is yet, but something's happening there. It could be the end of the Islamic Republic, hopefully, and replaced with some form of proper democracy, but that is up to the Iranian people to see how much they can fight for. And in China, following some of these uh, zero-COVID lockdowns that have been extraordinarily authoritarian and repressive, especially within the Uyghur district of western China and uh, Xinjiang. Those protests are quite massive. It's spread to many cities. I'm certainly no China effort, uh, expert. I know a bit more about Iran than I do China. But what both of these people are doing is beautiful for themselves. And from a Ukraine perspective, the fact that all of Ukraine's enemies are horrific dictatorships whose people are breaking free of that um, severe oppression, except for the Russians, of course. They seem to just take whatever comes at them. Solidarity with both of these peoples. Oh, I got a bit long there. Unfortunately, I do have to edit this very quickly, considering the time restraints of electricity and it being very late and wanting to sleep, but I can't. But never mind. Gotta get this out. If you would like to support Ukraine Without Hype, like, subscribe, share, thumbs up, five star, whatever the various uh, uh, app you use to either listen to us or share us, uses Facebook, Twitter, whole deal. Let people know about us. And of course, we're always open to suggestions. But now I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, those who supports on patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype, please join us there. It's fantastic. But our supporters, thank you very much. Thank you to Deborah Grazer, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana, Rajesh, Anakaran, Anonymous, Devi, Etene, Sam Toman, Theo, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochmal, Amea, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Roda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Spring, Deborah Lee, Eric Honnold, George, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Poem, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Churd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Lev Goldener, Levy Grove, Lottie, Melissa Kilselko, 
Monkley Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokyark, Tokaryuk, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiech, Sobiech, excuse me, probably Polish, should be able to pronounce that, Vic, Victoria Leonteva, and Will Stevens. Thank you all very much for the support. So word on the street is that tomorrow will be a big one, that there will be a severe uh, missile attack that will likely cause ever more complications. You will know more about this tomorrow than I will probably because I'm still in the past at 3 a.m. But you in the future will know whether we got um, hit even harder than usual. (sighs) I want this war to be over. But until next episode, knock on wood that doesn't, uh, this, this attack doesn't happen, but it usually does. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Keep supporting Ukraine. And Slava Ukraini. Hey, hey,